th this antipathy toward alternative translations that the fundamentalist uh, Latter-day Saints and, and other Christians uh, had going on was that the new and modern translations were challenging some of the older theology that, uh, that, that, that had sort of arisen out of the King James Version and questioned in some ways the reliability of certain doctrines that had sometimes been based on a mistranslation, for instance. And so uh, so there was some some hesitation around church leaders sort of wanting to open up and, and say, oh, maybe our entire theology based on that reading of that one word, you know, um, justification or, uh, you know, things along these lines that doesn't really hold up in, in uh, modern translations. Maybe we should just rethink the theology rather than enforce some mistranslation. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall and honored to welcome back to The Cultural Hall, Taylor Petrie. Uh, if you want to know more about him, we do far more uh, background and, and getting to know him in episode 409. Uh, that's how long ago that was. 409, he wrote the book Tabernacles of Clay. We also chat, chat a lot about sexuality within the church. So if, if that's something that you might be interested in, check it out. It's episode 409. It's in the past, and that's not what we're talking about today. Welcome, Taylor. Welcome. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for welcoming me. Well, and I appreciate you welcoming me for sure. Uh, we're going to talk about the Bible, and we've had a few of these discussions recently. Um in the not-so-distant past, we had Thomas Wayment uh, talking about his New Testament translation uh, of the Bible, but that's not what this is, this book that you have, have co-authored, co-edited with uh, some other folks called The Bible and the Latter-day Saint Tradition. It's not a reworking of the Bible. Tell me what it is. Well, Tom Wayment is a contributor to the volume, and so very proud to have him in there. Uh, uh, myself and uh, my two other co-editors, Corey Crawford and Eric Eliason, uh, all have uh, kind of different training in biblical studies. So uh, you, you mentioned that my my other book is on uh, gender and sexuality in the church, but my actual uh, doctoral training and the area that I teach in as a professor is actually in biblical studies. And I became interested in the intersection between biblical studies and the Latter-day Saint tradition in grad school. Obviously, I had a lot of questions as I was studying the Bible. And it uh, uh, turns out that Corey Crawford was also in graduate school with me. He was studying the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, and I was studying the New Testament. And uh, we started having a lot of conversations and uh, came to know Eric Eliason along the way and realized that we were really a part of a broader network of Latter-day Saint scholars who were sort of coming of age at that time period who were getting training in graduate schools in biblical studies in at a at a scale and to a degree that earlier generations really hadn't matched there had been latter-day saints who had gone off to study the bible for 100 years or so mm -hmm. uh, we tell that story in the book but uh, uh the field itself was changing and latter-day saints were approaching the text with a new set of questions and uh, we decided we really needed to kind of make our mark on the, the the current conversation and sort of say, here's where this generation is at. So this book is really kind of a landmark book of bringing together all of the, the, the great scholars of our generation to talk about their expertise in biblical studies and what that has to do with and how it how it intersects with the Latter-day Saint tradition. Do you feel like there's a disregard for the Bible uh, because of the Articles of Faith? We're like, eh, you know, as far as it's uh, translated correctly. But really, guys, focus on the Book of Mormon. That is the keystone. That is the differentiating factor. Bible, good. Book of Mormon, great. 
Do you feel like we've done that? Um, yes. And, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of history essays here that talk about the relationship that Latter-day Saints have had toward the Bible. In a way, this goes all the way back, as you mentioned, to, to Joseph Smith, to Brigham Young, who were negotiating a relationship to the Bible um, uh, a little bit differently than many of their Protestant contemporaries. Uh, their Protestant contemporaries were sort of locked in a, a battle over what does the Bible mean and wrestling with the, uh, uh, the, the contradictions and tensions within the Bible. And Latter-day Saints uh, like Joseph Smith and, and, and Brigham Young, early Latter-day Saints, were really thought that, you know, maybe there's another source of authority here. The Book of Mormon, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. prophets as, as another source of authority. And so Latter-day Saints have had this kind of... Um, ambivalent relationship to the text where it's both accepted as an authority and is sometimes superseded by contemporary scripture and, and modern revelation and is sometimes disregarded altogether uh, as well. And, and so we've had this kind of, um, yeah, this, this sort of long conversation and the way that then scholars enter into this conversation at a later stage with uh, the rise of a new set of critiques and criticisms of the Bible I think adds another layer of complication to those to those stories. But as you noted, um, you know, in the modern period, there really is a turn to the Book of Mormon, starting with Spencer W. Kimball. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because as I was reading, as I was looking back at, at this earlier stage here, and Ezra Taft Benson, I should say, uh, as I was looking back at the earlier stage, I found Latter-day Saint scholars who were complaining that, man, we just really don't pay attention to the Bible anymore in the 1960s. <laughs> so we've been we've been sort of lamenting the fact that, uh, that that as a people, we don't pay attention to the Bible as much. Of course, if those people in the 1960s looked at what the curriculum looked like today, they would be appalled. And we look back at the curriculum they had on the Bible in the 1960s as much better, much more in depth than anything that the church puts out today. Um, so we have, I think, seen a little bit of a retreat from the Bible as in general, as a people, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in, in terms of the depth of, of uh, attention that we give it relative to what we've done in the past, at least. Do you feel like there's a, a disadvantage or like a judgment on um, when we talk about uh, scholars, particularly uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, scholars who study the Bible, that because of our attitude towards additional scripture that there are those that, you know, study the Bible who are like, you don't even have table stakes. If you believe that there's something beyond this particular book, no thanks, you're not invited. Yeah. You know, I think one way of, of kind of looking at the value that the church as an institution tends to put on biblical scholarship is to compare the church's scripture department in, uh, uh, that they have in Salt Lake with the church history department that they have in Salt Lake. One is full of amazing scholars who are trained as historians, who have amazing publications, who, who really know their craft of 19th and 20th century history. And the scripture department is made up of many very well-meaning folks, but not a single one that is trained in biblical studies, in scripture translation, in uh, that even knows the languages really with any seriousness. Um, it is uh, it is not there where you find kind of any sort of serious scholarship. There are many amazing uh, Latter-day Saints who are biblical scholars. Many are employed at BYU and, mm -hmm. and other places. Um, but this, the church doesn't really put a lot of 
concern in the question of biblical scholarship. Now, there are some general authorities where we could make some exceptions and say, oh, they they cite a biblical scholar here and there. They're, they seem to be citing modern translations rather than the King James Version as a kind of sign of their engagement with uh, with some of the developments in biblical scholarship. But uh, but as an institution, it's it's hard to really make the case that, that we have a high value, not just on the Bible, but on biblical scholarship, as you mentioned. There seems to be a shift, though, uh, within the church, and and some are accusing, I think, the church of trying to be a, a broader appeal or that we're sort of softening it, right? Like, hey, Christian brothers and sisters, we're we're just like you. We, you know, we're leaning into Holy Week and we're, you know, all these things that have been traditionally, you know, um, sort of either biblically based or, or far more mainstream Christian and, and there's sort of that push into it. Do you think that then with that we'll see uh, w- with, you know, the the headquarters or the downtown, the Department of Biblical Studies, like is there a shift to know that, to be more that so that we can, when we engage in these other Christian denominations, be more educated around that within the church? It's possible, but, you know, it's hard to look at other Christian denominations and say that they're particularly engaged with biblical scholarship either. Hmm. Uh, You know, biblical scholarship and churches have really kind of pursued a parallel sometimes intersecting, but often in, in antagonizing paths in relationship to one another. Um, back in the 19th century, uh, 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 you know, sort of new methods of history and new approaches to studying the Bible were developing. We sometimes call this higher criticism. It's a, a term that some Latter-day Saints may, might be familiar with. It was very much attacked by uh, mid-20th century church leaders like J. Reuben Clark and uh, Joseph Fielding Smith and, and uh, Bruce R. McConkie, who hated higher criticism. And um, and so there's been a little bit of a, a, a tension there in, with respect to, to biblical scholarship that the churches had. And that really reflected the direction that many churches were going in that period as well, where they were sort of uh, moving toward a fundamentalist or, and evangelical approaches to the Bible, which engage with biblical scholarship somewhat skeptically uh, or or maybe sort of mercenarily. Something, you know, they would go in and they would find things that, that they really liked or that supported a, a certain position and they would kind of ignore ignore the rest. And so there has been an understandable tension between biblical studies and Christianity in general. And I think we see that as one of the explanations for why church leaders have uh, been a little bit reluctant to engage with it. As I mentioned, several church leaders actively opposed it. And in an earlier era, and then in the mid 20th century, when Latter-day Saint scholars were going out and getting trained in biblical studies, um, their opponents in the church really suppressed their voices, made sure that they didn't get jobs at uh, mm. at church schools, uh, uh, You know, refused to allow their stuff to be published, refused to get their stuff uh, uh, sort of incorporated into the church curriculum during this era. So there was really an era of antagonism that the church had toward it. Um, so I'm not necessarily sure that as the church is sort of leaning into its Christian credentials and Christian credibility, that biblical scholarship as such is necessarily going to be the thing that that, that gets them there. In, in a way, it's it is a sort of similar issue that the church was dealing with in an earlier period with respect to its own history. Right. And where it was a little bit scared of engaging with 
the the sort of professional study of uh, of its own history and um you know tried to suppress it in some cases as well and then eventually turned a corner and said no we need to we need to face these issues head on and and moved in a direction toward transparency and so on and so some of my colleagues who who are authors of this book think that we might be headed in that direction with respect to biblical scholarship as well as as uh, latter-day saints start to be exposed more to the study of the bible and realize that some of the simplistic narratives that might have existed don't really hold up so much anymore. Um, we might be facing a new era where where uh, the church will need to engage with biblical scholarship as a matter of it for its own survival, really, to, to sort of rework its own narratives, its own stories in light of uh, a sort of better history around uh, the ancient world. If you'll forgive the uh, pun that is baked into the question that I'm about to ask you uh, about this project and about this book, but tell me the uh, the genesis of this whole thing. Where did it come from? Where, like, what what, what was it that that uh, group of you guys said, "Man, we really need this," and what need does it feel fill? In part, I think it was a frustration as we looked out at the landscape of uh, of a scholarship that was being produced on the Bible and the church. And I, I'll put scholarship really in quotes here. Um, much of the work that uh, that was being produced on the Bible um, was really sort of devotional in nature, which has its place, right? Uh, but we saw a lot of kind of popularized books, books being published by, you know, Deseret Book and other sort of uh, uh, church affiliated presses that were talking about, you know, Paul and Jesus and, and so on. And were really um, not uh, engaged with the, the kind of current biblical conversations that were, that, 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 that existed. Um, and uh, really there hadn't been a serious book uh, that dealt with Latter-day Saints and the Bible since 1980, the early 1980s. Uh, Philip <laughs> Barlow, one of the other contributors of this book, uh, a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, uh, uh, writes this important book that kind of lays out the history of how Latter-day Saints have engaged with the Bible. And you know, then 30 years passed and nobody else had done anything on this. <laughs> and we sort of said, hey, we've got 40, 30 to 40 great scholars right now who will write an article here and there, you know, uh, but really hadn't put it all together in the kind of academic perspective that we really wanted to highlight in this book. And so it stands out as being a sort of a, a source of, I think, trusted academic approaches as opposed to um, the kind of devotional, uh, uh, inspirational literature about the Bible that had uh, that, that still to this day, but that had really kind of been the norm that was being published in, in LDS publication venues. I want to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we'll pick it right back up, uh, talk about uh, how people can get this book and, and you know, all the things. We're, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. We'll come back and do that in the second block of The Cultural Hall. BestDJinUtah.com. It's been a while since we've had a new one of these, and I apologize for that. It's because I've been so busy DJing events all over the country, uh, but especially here in Utah. Been able to do some great, uh, you know, weddings. I've done a, a prom or two for different listeners of the Cultural Hall. I love it when you uh, reach out to me at bestdjinutah.com, or uh, you can find the phone number online as well. I would love it if you say, hey, I heard about you on the Cultural Hall, because maybe, just maybe, I give a Cultural Hall discount uh, all sorts of events. It doesn't have to be a, a wedding. It could be a community event. Maybe it's a ward or youth activity. I'm doing one of those this summer. In fact, just lock the deal down on that. 
Uh, whatever it may be, if you need music to accompany your event or you just need a great MC, I would love to be able to help you out. You're simply going to need to go to bestdjinutah.com. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop and they start at only $29 a month and it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can become a Patreon saint. Would love to have you do that. Go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. What does that get you? Gets you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where other Patreon saints are hanging out. And it gets you the distinct privilege of being able to see the video from this particular interview. And it's of note because, and this struck me as you were talking as we first begun today, uh, when we first chatted back in episode 409, I think that I was your first ever, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, first ever podcast interview. And I'm 99% sure that you were in your closet because that was the best place that you could figure to get good audio where we had some interesting things with Wi-Fi. So uh, worth checking out. Go to patreon.com forward slash the culture hall. Do you seem to remember that in the back of your mind, Taylor? I think it was the first one for this book, at least. It might, okay. I'd have to remember. I mean, that's been many years now. Uh, it, it may have been my first one ever, but I think I was just getting a microphone and just yep. kind of getting trying to get set up in that whole world there. So thanks for being my uh, guide in that, in all of that. <laughs> well, it, you know, it, you've grown so much. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> uh, so I have to wonder this. And, and when we talk about the Bible, to me, and I know to a lot of other people, like when we say the Bible, like there is such a difference between Old Testament and New Testament. And it seems like, and, you know, watch out for, you know, either blasphemy or heresy or or whatever it would be defined. But it seems to me a growing number of people that I have the conversation with sort of put Old Testament in this, you know, these are, it's like a book of great stories that can teach us great lessons. Maybe they didn't happen so much. Uh, and the New Testament, you know, that's the 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 study of Christ as he's as he's on the earth. Is, is there some of that that I think contributes to us kind of going ah this thing that's hard to understand that probably I don't know that it really happened. Far as it's translated correctly, that we just sort of dismiss it. Um, I think that I think in part that these kind of popular narratives about the Book of Mormon, I'm sorry, the 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 Old Testament as being hard to understand or mm-hmm. as being maybe even morally questionable in, in a lot of ways, right? And certainly as being less historically reliable are uh, sort of out there in, in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the idea that the New Testament is somehow more historically reliable is another interesting thing. <laughs> it's not entirely true either, sure. right? Um, but uh, but yeah, these, these are, I think, a part of the broader conversation. And they're an example of the way that Latter-day Saints sort of absorb um, generally Protestant, generally Christian uh, 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 ideas that that kind of emerge about the Bible. Some of them are a result, I think, of the fact that we rely on a 400-year-old translation, a very inaccurate, poor translation of the text, one which represents a, a level of the English, a layer of the English language that is very distinct from the language that we speak, uh, which makes the Bible very difficult to engage th- that way. And mm-hmm. so we talk a little bit about why we rely on the King James Version, for instance, in, 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 this, uh, in this book. We have some great essays on that. And, uh, you know, I, I always encourage people to read 
a new modern translation that is better and you'll understand the text and, and suddenly it will make more sense to you. And, and it's not all just a bunch of, uh, you know, these and thous the whole time. Now, there are some people who love the poet poetry of the King James Version. I am not one of them. I cannot sure. stand the King James Version. But uh <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's, I, I think, maybe one of the things that sometimes contributes to that inaccessibility of the Old Testament that, that many Latter-day Saints feel. It's so interesting to me when you consider the the where we've come to where we are, because I, I really feel like there was this sort of dogmatic way of it is King James Version. You are looking at something else. How could you? That is not what God would want you to do. Almost that you know, heavy handed. And then when we get the most recent, you know, uh, sort of rework of the, of the general handbook where it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, other translations, they're fine. And then, you know, having conversations with people like Thomas Weymouth, who says, you know what, when we, when it's translated into other languages, it's modernized for these individuals in a way that in English, we adhere to the King James version and do us this tremendous disservice. When I, when I think about it, and really stop and, and and sort of consider a God who would want me to understand. I I the whole discussion of like what translation I should be using just sort of disappears. But that 30 years ago would have been like, whoa, Mr. and Mrs. Stedman, brother and sister Stedman, your 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 son has wandered. I where are you gonna reel him in? Are we gonna bring him back? Is it is it just a, a maturing? Is it a is it a globalization of of the word? What what is leaning to that being so? I mean, really earth shifting in the Bible. Well, I think this goes back to the 1950s, and you know we talked about some of those mid 20th century figures like uh, Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce mm -hmm. R. McConkie, but J. Reuben Clark is in the mix there, and he's one of those that not only hates higher criticism and biblical scholarship, but he really goes after the King James version as being the only authorized version for the church. Uh, he, he writes a book, why the King James version, you know, mm -hmm. where he uh, disputes the, the reliability of other modern translations that were kind of emerging and becoming popularized in the mid middle of the 20th century. And so it's a part of I think uh, the fundamentalist, and, and I use that not in the sense of fundamentalist Mormonism about polygamy, but fundamentalist Christianity, this hyper-conservative, anti-modernist uh, approach that many church leaders sort of had glommed onto. Now, there were many other church leaders who disputed that and didn't accept that, but they lost the battle in the mm -hmm. long term. And it was uh, uh, the J. Reuben Clarks of the world who who really kind of set in stone and, and do so in such a way that it's very hard. It was very hard for us to kind of move past it. You know, as, as you mentioned, it's only until very recently that we see some kind of opening up of like, okay, you're not an evil person if you read another translation. And we see church leaders citing the new revised standard version in general conference, for instance, right? Sure. But um, th this antipathy toward alternative translations that the fundamentalist uh, Latter-day Saints and, and other Christians uh, had going on was that the new and modern translations were challenging some of the older theology that uh, that, that, that had sort of arisen out of the King James Version. Um, and questioned in some ways the reliability of certain doctrines that had sometimes been based on a mistranslation, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so uh, so there was some some hesitation around church leaders sort of wanting to open up and, and say, oh, well, maybe our entire theology based on that reading of that one word, you know, um, justification 
or uh, you know things along these lines that doesn't really hold up in in uh, modern translations. Maybe we should just rethink the theology rather than enforce some mistranslation there. So so I think that's part of it is uh, this weird history where the church kind of gets caught up in these other uh, uh, kind of Christian uh, battles that were going on about translations and Latter-day Saints kind of pick a side there mm-hmm. um, that uh, that is in, in some respects, I think, the, the mistaken side. But I think that people are uh, hesitant towards change about that because you mentioned that the interpretation or, you know, new revised then creates a different theology. And then people are like, what, what is this church? This isn't the church that I, I belong to. We're changing. We're adapting yeah. to you know, the doctrine doesn't change. It's the, you know, it's living, but it's not living like changing. It's continue, you know, that it becomes sort of a dissonance. How how can people embrace both where we're at and where we've been as we look to the future? Well, I think that the church is always changing. There There is no sort of static. And one of the things that, that we try to go into in the book, there is no static way or single way that Latter-day Saints have approached this, uh, the Bible and, and that our tradition has always been open to kind of change and adaptation, even when it's becoming more conservative. It turns mm-hmm. out that when it's becoming more conservative, it's doing so often in reaction to other uh, uh, things that are happening around it as well, right? Uh, the 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 mid 20th century biblical fundamentalism of church leaders looked very different from the biblical readings that Brigham Young was giving, where he was totally saying, you know, some of the Bible is wicked and some of the Bible is written by Satan, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, had a much more critical perspective in relationship to the Bible than than uh, uh, his successors later on. Right. So we're always in a conversation around these things. And I think that um, being open to the fact that the tradition itself is always in a sort of development is also part of what the, you know, the tradition of continuing revelation of a kind of continual adaptation that that that, uh, that is built into our theology is made for. Uh, a, a quick just aside, you mentioned that uh, there are different sort of versions or translations that you like. Just very quickly, what which one do you prefer as you study the, the Bible? What's your Petrie preferred uh, translation. Well, if I'm doing academic work, I go to the Greek or the Hebrew, uh, or, you know, so, so that's what I, I happen to, to know those languages well enough that I can work in them as, uh, as original sources. But for people who, who don't know those languages, um, the Bible that I teach with in an academic context is the new revised standard version. And I recommend an annotated, uh, one with notes So the Oxford annotated, uh, new revised standard version is is uh, sort of the gold standard. The Harper Collins New Revised Standard Version is also an annotated Bible that has excellent footnotes and, and, and explanations in it uh, as well. And so that one's also a, a great source. Um, the New International Version is popular among evangelicals. And, and so some Latter-day Saints have found that they resonate with that translation a little bit, though uh, it's interesting because there are some aspects of the new international version that are translated specifically to discredit Mormon theology, at least in my reading of it. Okay. How they understand baptisms for the dead in First Corinthians 15 is seems to be written, mistranslates it in such a way in order to discredit Latter-day Saints. So uh, I, I'm, I'm a little 
little skeptical of the NIV myself, but you know, I also suggest that people read Jewish translations of the uh, of the Old Testament at least. The Jewish Publication Society has an excellent Jewish study Bible uh, that again is a very scholarly, well well done, but will also give you a kind of different take. And I've when I've recommended that to people, they've come back to thank me and say, "Wow, that was really fascinating." So uh, that's another one that I would take a look at. Anecdotally, I think it's so funny how we're just kind of afraid to do those things. And um, even the suggestion to some people as they're listening to this, they're like, whoa, I, I don't I don't know that I'm going to do that. But but the older that I get, like the the more that I just appreciate a lot of different perspectives and being able to be like, yeah, OK, so I read that. Oh, I don't, I don't like that, but I, uh, you know, I took the time to at least see what that was about or, or be able to experience some of that so that I could know, oh, there is something that I can draw from that experience or to just be like, eh, you know, that's not the, that's not my jam. I'm going to stick with this thing or, or whatever it is. It's funny when we're afraid of that. And then conversely, I love if you've ever had this opportunity when you're in, um, Sunday school and someone is using the, the, you know, the NRSV or something like that, and they read from it and they don't preface that it's, you know, something that's not King James and everyone starts doing the look around the room going, is this, am I in the right? Are we, why, hold on, where, what, what verse is that? It's just something that makes me sort of smile as we kind of evolve as far as all that stuff goes. So, uh, so it's a collection of various essays. Am I understanding this? Yeah, so this is a uh, you know the the specific academic genres we call this an edited volume, um, and and what that means is that we solicited essays from experts, scholarly experts, on a variety of different topics. I think we have over thirty essays, and we broke it down into five different sections or categories of uh, of essays. We had some that were really kind of trying to show how Latter Day Saints have read and might read specific biblical uh, uh, texts. So we have essays on how Latter-day Saints read the Pentateuch or the first five books, how Latter-day Saints read the Gospels, how they should read the, the prophets in the Old Testament, how they should read the uh, the book of Revelation. So it's a kind of, it's not a full commentary, but definitely a sort of, you know, overview for, for engaging with those specific texts. Mm -hmm. We have another section that's about how Latter-day Saints have looked at the Bible historically. Um, and so, you know, I told some of that story of how there are, you know, some Latter-day Saints who go off to study the Bible a hundred years ago uh, at the University of Chicago, which was quite re re revolutionary. It was a very progressive school back then. And many yeah. of these Latter-day Saints then come back and are attempting to share their knowledge with the church. And it causes all this friction, right? So we tell that story in various waves. There's another wave in the 1970s and then my wave in the 1990s and early 2000s uh, of uh, Latter-day Saints who are going off to study the Bible and telling a little bit of that, uh, of that story. Um, we also talk about how there are different methods or approaches to studying the Bible in this section that Latter-day Saints have, have engaged, um, some that are very historical focused and some that are much more theologically focused. And so we have one of the real representatives, Joseph Spencer, of the uh, uh, Latter-day Saint theological approach to the Bible, uh, a great essay from him in here, as well as feminist approaches as hmm. another um, uh, one that has really thrived in the Latter-day Saint community, not very well known, but has been around for 40 years now. Uh, uh, and we have somebody sort of sum up and, and contextualize Latter-day Saint feminist approaches uh, in, in that broader context. Uh, we have other sections that uh, lay out how Latter-day Saint scripture, like uh, the Pearl of Great Price and the Book of Mormon, are 
in, uh, related to the Bible, how they're sort of uh, uh, using the Bible and reusing the Bible in, in various ways. So uh, again, there's sort of as a treasure trove of almost everything, not everything that we wanted, but almost everything that, that we could get at least uh, that, that we had experts in, in, in the tradition that could uh, help to contextualize some of these things. You know, uh, kind of going back to a question I have earlier, and I just would appreciate sort of your perspective on it. Uh, if you took, for instance, maybe that the Old Testament, like, you know, is, is just maybe stories, maybe parables, maybe lessons to be taught. Do you, do you think that there, or, or, you know, we can assign that to the Book of Mormon or, or whatever, right? Do you think that there is um, still value, even if those aren't like historical, this happened sort of documents? Well, um, so I, I will I will say that not all Latter-day Saint scholars and not all scholars in general um, necessarily have the same view about what is historical and what isn't. Uh -huh. um, I think there are some generally accepted things like that the the first uh, you know eleven books of Genesis are tend tend to be received relatively skeptically as historical accounts. Mm -hmm. um, other people might take that all the way up to Moses, some even up through the kings of Israel as being somewhat fictional, right? So there isn't really a clear line about, well, what's historical and what's not um, that, that everybody agrees on necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, some people read the evidence a little bit differently than others. And so I'll let that I'll allow that various scholars in in our volume even might take different positions sure. on on some of those things. Um, but I think that the question of the historical reliability and the value, as you say, of, of these texts does need to be separated. And it's it, I think it's separated both because um, uh, you know we we uh, don't always mediate the meaning of our of the way that we've used this text based on historical re reliability uh, whether or not adam and eve existed is um, not really relevant to the question of like well what does the story mean for us today sure you know? um and if we if if one person says they existed and one person says that they didn't it doesn't change the answer to the question of well, what does it mean for us today mm -hmm. and so I, I think that many of the scholars in our volume uh, might might take that approach to the to the text that questioning the historical reliability of any particular parable or any particular uh, miracle of Jesus, for instance, um, doesn't discount that the text still has value and meaning for us because history and value are, are separate things. In the same way that lots of bad things have happened in history, uh, you know, that doesn't that doesn't affect whether or not they're meaningful or not. We might <laughs> study them for, for lots of different reasons or, or draw lessons from them. Uh, for lots of different reasons, even though they're historical, it doesn't it doesn't make it it doesn't give it inherent value, right? Um, and so, so I think that that's probably the the best way to to approach it. And the and the theological approaches that we outline are really quite critical of the idea that history is the most important thing uh, and the most important way to study texts. Um, and so, so, as I said, some of the essays in this uh, in this volume kind of try to lay out that perspective of why. Uh, history maybe shouldn't even matter at all. I think that's a generous place, especially when uh, we we talk about things like the historicity of the Book of Mormon specifically, right? A lot of people that will come at um, that book of scripture, oh, horses, there's horses. I can't believe that you would say that there's horses or iron or, or any of those kind of things. And, and I think that it allows a place um, to be able to say, oh, 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 this is so very valuable to me. 
and whether or not there was a horse or not doesn't matter. I, I, I'm I, I, again. I don't want to take the position representing all of the authors and sure. the volume here. You know, some might think there is great value in whether or not there were horses. Uh, it's not. I don't think the the most relevant question that many people might have. Now, I, I will say that as a tradition. We have often tied, again, coming out of this more conservative and fundamentalist approach to the Bible, as as uh, churches were splitting from the scholars or scholars were splitting from the churches on these issues, when the scholars started saying, wait a second, you guys, uh, the you know, these things can't be historically supported. There wasn't an exodus or, you know, the, this, you can't reconcile this part of the gospels and so on. And churches started to freak out and said, no, 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 it definitely happened that way. And mm-hmm. so there was this tradition and our church is definitely a part of it of leaning into history as somehow being validating of the, the value of this text. Right. And I, I think as the century has, has, has passed, the last hundred years have passed, People are probably a little bit more open to uh, to being critical of that position, in part because the historical issues have have um, gotten a little bit even more clear than they were a hundred years ago. Again, not everybody agrees on every last little little thing here, but it, it's it's much harder even today than it was a hundred years ago to uphold the historicity of everything that happens sure. uh, or that's described in the text, and so you really sort of have to accept that position that uh, that history and value and meaning can't be just simultaneous can't can't be the same thing uh, the the greater relevance of that for the Book of Mormon I think is a, is a larger open open question there mm-hmm. um but uh but you know uh, as other Christians kind of navigated this and came to this comfortable conclusion uh, uh that the Bible doesn't need to be completely 100 many Christians did uh, others mm-hmm. still reject this but the, the Bible doesn't need to be 100 accurate uh it might be a model that latter-day saints adopt as well uh, with respect to uh, not just the Book of Mormon, but other modern scriptures. Do you think that that's where uh, there's still a lot of contention that that lies? Is there still just people, this is literal, this is figurative, this is, you know, and and that maybe God's like, "Ah, I think maybe you're missing the point. (laughs) Well, I don't know what God's doing. uh, And 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 I refuse to speak for him. (laughs) <laughs> uh, not that he asked or not that I would ever, you know, suppose to do so, but, but I just wonder sometimes like, do, are, are we really getting caught up in the most important of things? And even as I ask you the question, like, I know that you need to make sure that you represent you and, and only you and maybe how you feel today, which was different than you of five years ago and maybe different of how you are from five years from now. And I, and I almost think that it's sort of, you know, not so much the point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the sort of, so, you know, I, I don't really like literal versus figurative as the, as the way of describing the two camps here. Right. Um, uh, everybody is a little bit literal and everybody is a little bit figurative and, you know, there's, there's no like one side versus the other, sure. but I think that the idea that there are, um, you know, that there is a kind of split, uh, that dominated the 20th century and continues to be relevant in the 21st century between that that fundamentalist perspective that we've described of a kind of uh, uh, you know absolutism of uh, um, uh, you know the, uh, there's a bunch of sort of key theological words that are all escaping me right now here of inerrancy of the text right uh, uh, things like that 
that, that some Latter-day Saints gravitated toward, and the other side of the modernists, as we sometimes call them, um, who are uh, who are uh, uh, saying, you know, we don't need to accept every last thing. The Bible still has value, and that theological perspective of modernism mm -hmm. is uh, continues to animate the church. And, and there were historical church leaders all through the 20th century who accepted that position. As I said, they they sort of got drowned out by the more powerful fundamentalist church leaders. But that modernist tradition was all the way through. Lowell Benyon is a is a key example. Um, even some of the the uh, uh, fun, uh, the, the, uh, farms folks are actually modernists. They're not fundamentalists at all. They accept a lot of these things. And so the sort of modernist perspective, I think, um, is, is, uh, covers a wide variety of, of theological perspectives from conservative and apologists to more progressive, uh, members. But even that doesn't really fully capture the full landscape of uh, of how Latter Day Saints have approached this text and what the what the battlegrounds are. So we me I mentioned feminism as being as being one of those things, which doesn't really rest on so much the question of literalness and historicity and so on, but really about the values of power and hierarchy and patriarchy and and how whether we should be critical or accepting of of those uh, of those values as they're represented in the text. So what happens in the second half of the 20th century, and I think we're still living in, in, in this era in the in the early 21st century, is that the conversations about the Bible just get so much more complicated. And it's why we need 30 authors to tell the story, <laughs> even just a fraction of the story, because uh, it really just proliferates in so many new and exciting ways. And we want to make sure that our readers are exposed to that wide variety of perspectives. I want to take another break. When we come back, uh, I've got three questions. Those that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, plus a couple other ones as we wrap this out. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, two things. Remember, you can always reach out to us, contact at theculturalhall.com. That is the email address. You can suggest other guests. You can say, that was a really great guest. I love Taylor. You should have him on more often. And maybe you'll get your wish with some upcoming episodes we've got. Maybe, just maybe. That's contact at theculturalhall.com. And then don't forget, there is that free Facebook group. It's called Back Row. Uh, it's the Cultural Hall Back Row. You can find it on Facebook. It's over 300 people who love to talk tangentially about the uh, various things that we talk about here in the episodes. Very rarely are they about what the actually ep what the actual episode was about. Uh, they usually are like, "Oh, Taylor's in Michigan. I I love Michigan." And then we go off on a a tangent about some place in Michigan where you have to get a shake or something like that. You can check that group out. It's the cultural hall back row. Now, Taylor, uh, I'm not going to do the fool's question of do you have a favorite, but with over 30 essays, is there one that as you were preparing it to publish something that either you found to be um, groundbreaking, uh, something that you felt to be uh, very different to how you had looked at something before, something that 
for someone like yourself who studies this went, oh, okay, here's the thing I had never considered. And I know you think that about all of them, but I'm asking you to highlight one or two of them, perhaps. Oh, you know, some of them are really kind of treading familiar ground, at least familiar ground to me, you know. And so I'm very much valued the fact that they were um, uh, sort of expert summaries of where the conversation was. And some of them were really breaking brand new ground, you know. Uh, again, I won't go through all of them that I have. I'm looking at the the list right now. And I love pretty much every single essay. And I'm of very, very proud do. of them. But I'll say one that uh, is close to my heart, um, and it's Jason Combs' historical criticism of the Bible among Latter-day Saints. And it's in part because it tells that history of the some of the history that I've been summarizing here of the conflicts between church leaders who really were out to get the higher critics and, and trying to suppress it, and uh, and some of the higher critics who were, who were going out to graduate school and fighting back. And part of the reason why that essay is uh, means so much to me is because that was my own story mm. of going off to study the Bible uh, in an academic context, being the only uh, Latter-day Saint in my program program and in, in the New Testament, they are not really having very many or if any mentors that were Latter-day Saints that I felt that I could go to. And so I've sort of felt off on my own, as I can imagine some of these early scholars were going out themselves and shipping off to Chicago from their small towns in Utah and studying the Bible and all of a sudden realizing like, oh, everything I thought I knew is uh, way more complicated than than that, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so you know, sort of being trained as a historical critic in, in my own tradition, um, uh, my own scholarship, uh, that that essay, I think, really stands out for me. Tell me who Jason is. I'm, I don't know that that name strikes familiar to me. No offense, Jason, as you listen to this, you are great. Maybe we'll have you in the hall in the future, but tell me who is Jason? Jason is a professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University now. Um, okay. He was a uh, a master's student at Yale Divinity School and then got a second master's in classics at Columbia before wow. going on to get his PhD in New Testament with Bart Ehrman, one of the great scholars of the of the Bible and the, the New Testament today at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, he's a couple of years uh, uh, below me, but we've sort of known each other pretty much our entire uh academic careers and really love and respect his his work and his scholarship as a New Testament and early Christianity scholar. Wow. And future guests of the cultural hall. That sounds like a fascinating sort of uh, approach and, and journey that he's gone in. Uh, okay. We're to the three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I will ask those of you now. Uh, the first question is, is, do you have a calling, sir? And if so, what is it? I do. I'm currently the uh, gospel principles teacher. Now, gospel principles doesn't technically exist anymore, but uh, our our ward decided that we sort of carved out a simplified uh, 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 a gospel doctrine class with the Come Follow Me curriculum that we do for some of the members who are new and investigating. And so I have the great privilege of teaching that class. I think that that is maybe the best class. I'm I, I'm sad that we sort of as a church as a whole sort of let go of the gospel principles, but just the simple doctrines and being able to teach it. Are you ever um, 
knowing that you know about the Bible and sort of that it's your, you know, your passion and your life's work to go into those things. Do you find yourself having to pump brakes a lot to be like, hold on, we're just talking about, we're just faith today. We're not, you know, (laughs) the, you know, Trinity of faith and the, you know, going into the, the deep thing. Do you find yourself having to do that? I, you know, I, I feel like I, know my audience well uh, in that class. And uh, at least I hope that I pull it off well of, of knowing just how to pitch it without having to either pump the brakes on myself or on them. And, and we we have a good time. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Oh, man, I, I think I have pretty much the best calling that there is. Um, so I, I love teaching. Obviously, I do it professionally. So anything in the gospel doctrine world and the teaching world, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. I've had lots of different callings in the past, but th- those tend to be my favorite. Uh, I, I'm not going to ask you the final question yet because I have another one adjacent to this project that you have done, which, by the way, if people want to purchase it, there will be a link in the show notes. It's the Bible and the Latter-day Saint tradition. Uh, you can be able to purchase that uh, paperback I'm looking at uh, says that it's like 45 bucks. So it's a, a fairly healthy, hefty, you know, great book people can get their hands on. Is there a project adjacent to this that you feel like um, either you or someone like yourself should engage in to help, you know, the Latter-day Saint folk with the Bible? Is there something that we're missing that needs to be made? I think that, um, you know, I, I point out, I think some of the things where I would like to see our scholarship on the Bible mature a little mm-hmm. bit more in the tradition, at least relative to to others. I think we need more uh, 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 voices, uh, uh, for what is some, some sometimes broadly called liberation theology in in the, to be relevant to what we're doing in the church here as well. And this is around, you know, as we mentioned, feminist approaches, post-colonial approaches, uh, uh, black liberation theology. These have all had a long history in biblical studies over the last several decades. And uh, Latter-day Saints have hardly engaged them at all. And I think that that's an area where I would love to see more development myself. Now, there are a few, I think, who are kind of hinting around these, these things. Um, Margaret uh, Olson and Fatima Sala uh, have done uh, this kind of liberation theology of the Book of Mormon in recent years. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing people, I think, start to approach the text these ways, but there still is a lot more to, lot more to be done. Something I'm sort of curious as you were mentioning that, uh, is the study of um, the Bible, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, is it mostly a gentleman's practice? Like, are mo- is, is the, is the, are the classes mostly men? Well, I'm fortunate to teach at a, you know, a non-Latter-day Saint school, a non-religious school, and I get everybody who has never opened the Bible that wants to take my class to people who grew up and, and went to Catholic school, you know. Um, I don't find it to be dominated by men at the undergraduate level, for for, for sure. Um, there is certainly a problem, I think, at the uh, graduate student and, and especially at the professor professor level of it being um, male, white male dominated. And some of that is because conservative seminaries are some of the main employers of biblical scholars Hmm. and conservative seminaries tend to hire a lot of white men. So when you show up at conferences, you're looking around, you're like, it's all white men. Um, uh, I, I would say that there are several graduate schools who have tried to tried to uh, take things in a different direction, uh, several seminaries even that have tried to to uh, take things in a different direction. So we're seeing some turnover here, but uh, it's definitely an, a critique that can be applied to the field as a whole. And 
absolutely a critique that should be leveled, that should be leveled at Latter-day Saint biblical studies. And I, I mentioned this in the introduction that I, I'm a little, I'm a little embarrassed, not my fault, but I'm a little <laughs> embarrassed that as a field, we continue to be uh, dominated by white men in Latter-day Saint biblical studies. And I think that there are various institutions or, or uh, efforts that might be made to bring in some fresh voices here. One of the things that excites me about that is knowing that, you know, that, that first of all, that's being recognized and hopefully that there are those that will come, you know, through the undergraduate, graduate and, and doctoral kind of approaches, those things and become those professors is the excitement about those new perspectives to, to come. Right. And, and that's no sort of slight against the, you know, white male perspective of that, but a, a white female, a person of color, male, a person of color, female, uh, whatever the thing, I, I, the more voices and the more conversation that, that can be had, I, that makes me excited to know that, that, that hopefully that's coming down the way. The final question we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, you've answered it before, but I'll ask you to, to answer it again is what is your favorite part of your faith? Oh, I, I might give the exact same answer as last time. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, because uh, I, I have a standard answer to this, but I think I'll offer a new one this Please? time here. Um, I love the uh, the idea that the glory of God is intelligence. I love that we have a by study and by faith, uh, a sort of a doctrine here, right? That um, that we encourage people to ask hard questions. And I say that knowing full well that that is not many people's experience and that many people do find themselves in conflict. And I fully admit that I have often found myself in a kind of intellectual conflict there. At the same time, I recognize that my own impulse to study, my own impulse to care about these questions, to, to want to understand the history, to want to understand our scriptural texts, to want to understand uh, some of the most complex issues of our time through the lens that Latter-day Saint tradition offers us has really been a, a very rewarding element of my of my faith, of my career. Um, and, uh, and to know the answers that I come up with are not always ones that other people like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, but that, that what we're all doing is we're having a conversation and we're, uh, we're, we're trying to make one another better. We're trying to ask these questions in good faith and, uh, and to be engaged in good faith with our conversation partners. And, uh, I, I guess I just really value that again, a, a book like this, that we can bring 30 plus people together to have that conversation where we don't all agree on, on everything. Um, but that, uh, that we can, can engage respectfully and in a learned way to, uh, to, to discuss the things that are really important to us. I really appreciate that. One question dawns on me as you were speaking, what is next for you as far as projects go? Seems like you've always got something or probably better put 10 somethings in the fire. <laughs> Tell me what we might see from you next or what has you curious in thought? Well, I've got a I've got a couple projects that are at various stages. Uh, one that's in a, in a relatively late stage that is a um, a book about queer kinship in the Latter Day Saint tradition, mm. and a book at the early stages that's about um, uh, uh, second century Christianity. Doesn't have a Mormon angle at all, but uh, that's my other sort of passion and my, the other field that I participate a lot in outside of Mormon studies and uh, uh, working on a history of that era that uh, that I hope will be summative of where the the scholarship has gone in the last few decades. 
Awesome. Look forward to having you back to chat about those. Uh, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you will be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat all 